A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 1015 a.m., You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. Have you ever had an experience uh, like this? You, you wake up one morning, or, or maybe it just happened at a moment in time in your life, but at some point in your life in the past, it kind of sank into your mind and into your heart that everything had changed, that your life would never be the same again. You remember a moment like that? Maybe you woke up one morning staring at the ceiling thinking, good grief, I'm actually married what now? <laughs> or maybe, good grief, I'm a dad or I'm a mom. <laughs> what now? <laughs> you kind of felt overwhelmed with that, maybe. Or maybe, good grief, I got the job that I applied for, but I feel overwhelmed by it. What's going to happen? How am I going to handle this? What do I do now? <laughs> and, and of course, many times those kind of moments are not quite so humorous maybe as that, but you know, they're pretty painful sometimes. I'll never forget my mom trying to describe the feeling she had when she walked back into the house after my dad had died and after the funeral was over and after all of her friends and family had gone back home. And she talked about what an overwhelming feeling it was to, to walk in the house all quiet and think, whoa, here I am. I'm at home, I'm all alone, this is the rest of my life. And it was an overwhelming moment for her. Have you experienced that? Most of us have had experiences something like that. Some of them are kind of exciting, some of them are scary, some of them are just simply overwhelming, some of them very sad. But if we can remember any of those moments, it might help us in a small way maybe to appreciate the situation Joshua found himself in. This was about 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, and it's recorded for us in God's Word in Joshua chapter 1, because Moses is dead. It's probably almost impossible for us to understand what that meant, that news that Moses was dead to, to the Israelites and to Joshua especially, because Moses was the great man of God who stood before Pharaoh and boldly said, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And now he's dead. Moses was the great man of God who stood tall between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, remember? And he shouted, don't fear, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. Now he's dead. Moses was the great man of God whose face shined with the glory of God because he'd spent so much time in the presence of God on the mountain there. Remember that? His face was shining so intensely that he had to wear a veil because the people were afraid to come near him. It scared them. But he's he's a great man of God. He's dead. So one of the greatest men who had ever lived on the face of the earth, especially up to that time, was now dead. And roughly three million Israelites 
have just spent 30 days weeping and mourning over his death. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now you're Joshua, okay? And here you stand. And now it's your job to try to fill that man's shoes or sandals. And it's your job to pick up where he left off and to lead these three million Israelites across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, which happens to be filled with fierce enemies. And I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that Joshua probably felt overwhelmed, don't you? I mean, it seems logical. Maybe, maybe he felt scared out of his wits. I mean, the Bible doesn't record his feelings, but it makes sense that he thought, this just can't be real. In a minute now, I'm going to wake up and realize this whole thing's just been a bad dream. <laughs> but of course, it was not a dream. It was real. He's not the only man, of course, who experienced feelings like this. I think the Apostle Paul experienced some of these same feelings of being overwhelmed with what God had assigned him to do. Because he hints at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, for we, talking about himself and, and of course, those who are with him ministering, we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You, you hear that feeling of being overwhelmed, don't you? Who's sufficient for these things? But he clarifies this just a few verses later. In the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That was the key. That's the reason he was able to keep going. But I think Joshua must have felt the same way as Paul. Who's sufficient for this? But we know the answer. It's the answer Paul gave. His sufficiency, our sufficiency, Paul's sufficiency is of God. It's true for Joshua, true for Paul, true for us. But I think it's very exciting what God chooses to tell Joshua on this occasion. And God calls him to record it in his word, in his book as part of God's word, so we can have these words from God too. And these are awesome words for any of us when we find ourselves in extremely difficult situations. If you haven't been there, and I'm sure most of you have, you will be. There's no way out. There'll be times when you just feel overwhelmed. And when we feel overwhelmed and are desperate in need of courage and wisdom, maybe not feeling particularly courageous at the moment, not, not, not feeling particularly wise at the moment, not feeling particularly up to the task, these are really wonderful words. Let's read it. Let's begin in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, 
that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Father, this is your word, your inerrant, infallible, perfect, living word. And it is so encouraging. And we thank you so much for the way you used your word to speak to Joshua at this moment of crisis for Joshua. And you put it here for us so you can encourage us with the same words. So help us to listen very carefully to the promises and the commands and realize that we are thinking about your word. Would you please be our teacher? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you accomplish your purposes as you always do when we take your word seriously? And we thank you in advance for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So here they stand, about three million Israelites with a brand new leader. For 40 years, they've wandered in the wilderness until one by one, all the adults who began the journey died. Every single one of them, of course, except Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful. And now here they are waiting to cross over into the promised land. But before we go on, I want us to take just a minute to review some of the striking parallels that God has woven into this historical account between this part of Israel's history as a nation and the life of the Christian in the New Testament church. It's amazing. We've looked at some of this already when we were studying Exodus. But their bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt parallels our bondage to Satan in sin before we're converted. And the Passover lamb without spot or blemish points to Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfectly sinless Lamb of God who gave his own precious blood to redeem us. There's a parallel there. When they applied the blood to the doorpost of the homes of the Israelites in Goshen to protect them from death, remember that? That foreshadowed the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts to protect us from spiritual death, eternal death, the blood of Jesus. Their coming out from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt parallels our redemption in Jesus, our being brought out from slavery to Satan and sin. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that their coming through the Red Sea typifies our Christian baptism. Now they're about to enter the promised land. Now, if we go by some of our old songs, and I'm thinking especially of songs like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. <laughs> Remember those words? I looked over Jordan, kind of picturing what they're doing. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. Remember that song? Or maybe you remember the old hymn, I'm Bound for the Promised Land. I love that song. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand, same picture, and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. When shall I reach that heavenly place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in his bosom rest? I'm bound for the promised land. I love that song, but the assumption of both of those songs is that the Israelites crossing into the promised land led by Joshua is kind of parallel to our crossing out of this life on into heaven at our physical death. And I guess that's okay. I'm not saying you should never think of it that way, but really there's a better parallel here. I think the parallel makes more sense if we think of going into the promised land as representing a Christian 
living a victorious Christian life in Christ in this life now before death, living in the promises of God, not just going to heaven. For one thing, if you remember, when they crossed over, there were still a lot of battles to be fought. Remember that? They had a lot of warfare ahead of them. They still had to deal with a lot of sin. That doesn't sound like heaven, does it? But it does sound like a believer who's claiming God's promises and is being faithful to stay in the battle of this spiritual warfare God's placed us in as long as we live in these bodies. But in Canaan, the Israelites had an opportunity to learn some valuable lessons about living victoriously if they would just keep their focus on God and God's commands and God's promises. And there are a lot of people in our day who call themselves Christians. I mean, God knows their hearts, but they still seem to be wandering in the spiritual wilderness. They're not experiencing the kind of victorious Christian life God wants us to have in Christ. I believe God wants us to learn how to keep our focus on Him and His promises and live victorious Christian lives, just like He's one of those Israelites to learn that. And we can learn a lot about that from this wonderful book of Joshua. By the way, the Hebrew word that's transliterated into the word Joshua is Yehoshua. Yehoshua. And Yehoshua literally means Jehovah is salvation. God is our salvation. Later in New Testament Greek, Yehoshua was transliterated into Jesus. Jesus. Which in English we have transliterated into Jesus. <laughs> so even in his name, Joshua was a type of Jesus. Jesus is our Joshua. He's God. He's our salvation. Jehovah is salvation. We can see Joshua as an Old Testament type pointing us to the New Testament and especially to our Lord Jesus. And as Joshua led Israel into victorious warfare in the possession of God's promised land, Jesus leads us into victorious spiritual warfare. You realize we're in a battle, right? and into possession of God's promises to his church. It's really important. It's an important parallel. Joshua, of course, had been trained under the leadership of Moses. In Exodus 24, he's called the servant of Moses. But I think he's a wonderful example of the importance of learning to be faithful in smaller things, maybe many times unnoticed things. And those years of preparation and the smaller things prepared him to be faithful in this huge responsibility that God's given him now. And I think that's an important principle for all of us. We need to learn to be faithful in the small things, don't we? You know what I mean. Sometimes they seem menial to us, but they're assignments from God. And from God's perspective, they are never small at all. It may seem small to us. It may seem small to other people, but not to God. You ever hear of Alan Redpath, you remember Alan Redpath? He was a great British evangelist, died in 1989. He came to the United States for a while and pastored the great Moody Church in Chicago from 1953 to 1962. But Alan Redpath had a lot of great quotes. For example, he's the one who said, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and he crushes him. <laughs> Think about that. Here's another one of his quotes. The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. Isn't that good? And here's another one that people like me can identify with. The Christian life doesn't get easier as one gets older. <laughs> That's true. All of us who are older can identify with that. 
Anyway, I read that Alan Redpath once posted a sign over his kitchen sink, which read, Divine service performed here three times a day. <laughs> and I think that's a great way of looking at it. Everything we do, even what we might call menial tasks, cleaning the house, doing the laundry, mowing the lawn, taking out the trash, washing the dishes, it's all to be done as service to the Lord. So Joshua, in his earlier life, had to do stuff like that and learn things like that. But now, Here's Joshua standing at the very edge. Maybe his knees are knocking. Maybe his mouth is dry. But in any case, he's facing an enormous challenge. And he needs a lot of courage. And at that very moment, God speaks to him. And God gives Joshua some incredible promises. He also gives Joshua some important commands. First, let's look at the promises. First, he reassured him that the land is a gift from God. Look at the middle of verse 2 there. Go over this Jordan you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, he uses the past tense. Notice this. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, that's future, I have given you past. Now, some people have trouble with this promise. <laughs> because you see, we're living in a day today when a lot of people have been taught to think that they're wiser than God. And they actually believe they're more loving than God. So when they read a passage like this, they set themselves up as judges of God. And they say, what right does God have to drive all those poor people out who are already living there? That's not right. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not loving. Well, for one thing, as God's word will make clear, the people who are going to be driven out of this land were horrifically depraved. They were, they were horrifically immoral. They had embraced sin to the fullest, kind of like before the flood. They sacrificed their children in the fire to pagan gods. And God was saying, in effect, I've had enough. It's time for me to bring judgment on these people. And that's exactly what he's doing. So they were driven out. Don't let anybody ever convince you that this was some kind of genocide or a racial thing. It, wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with their race. It had to do with sin. It was a matter of sin and judgment. Later on, when Israel, and then later on, when Judah became involved in the same kind of wicked depravity, God drove them out too. In their case, uh, of course, he brought them back. But the truth of this is God and God alone has the power and the right to give life and to take life away. That's God's prerogative, not ours. It's a power that more and more people in our day want to usurp for men, and they want to take that responsibility themselves. And that's why we have abortion. That's why we have infanticide in some cases. That's why we have euthanasia in some cases. But that belongs to God, to give and to take life. Not only that, God has the right to all the land. It's all his, right? It's his to give, to take away as he chooses. Remember what he said in Psalm 24? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, everything in it the world, and those who dwell therein. It's all God's. The whole thing belongs to God. He created it. It's His. And He and He alone has the right to give and the right to take away life. And He has the right to give and He has to take away land. It's His. He does it based on His infinite love and His infinite wisdom. He knows what He's doing. We don't. <laughs> we think we do, but we don't. We need to trust God with this sort of thing. 
The promised land was God's to give. The whole earth belongs to him. It was his to give. He chose to give it to Israel. He chose to take it away from these depraved, wicked, demon-controlled people. Now, the promise of this land was not a new promise, of course. This wasn't the first time God had ever given that promise to these people. Ever since God had called Abraham, that was at least 500 years or so before this, God had given Abraham the same promise. But now, Joshua is here. He's looking across the Jordan River with his own eyes, and that promise is about to be fulfilled over 500 years later, and God uses this moment to reassure him. He's saying, basically, it's okay, Joshua. That land is yours. I promised it to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I will keep my promise. A second thing that God promises Joshua is that he will give him victory over his enemies. Look at verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now, actually, Joshua had learned that lesson long, long ago as well. Remember when the 12 spies were sent to check out the promised land? This, that would be 40 years before this point. Remember how the other 10 spies were cowering in fear because of the fierce people who lived in Canaan? They said, we can't do this. But even then, if you remember, Joshua, along with Caleb, already knew if we'll just keep our focus on God, he will give us the victory. He made the promise. But it's incredibly gracious, I think, and loving for God to reassure Joshua right now at this particular point in time when it's all about to happen. Moses is gone now. Joshua's facing these huge challenges that are waiting for him just across the Jordan River, and God reinforces his promise. So God says, your enemies, Joshua, they're not going to be able to stand. They'll fall before you. That's a promise. And then there's a third very precious promise here. God promises to be with him at all times. He promises his very presence to Joshua. Last part of verse 5, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And look at the last part of verse 9. He underlines it. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's a fabulous promise. God didn't say, okay, Josh, here you are. They're right over there across the river. Go get them. I'll wait back here. By the way, won't you just send a runner to let me know how things are going after you've been in there for a while? <laughs> no, 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 no. God says, I am with you, Joshua. I will never leave you. I will be with you through it all, the whole process. Finally, he mentions one more promise. And of course, these are all intertwined together, but this one's a conditional promise. He promises to give him success. We'll look at the conditions in a minute, but let's just look at the promise first. End of verse 8, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The Hebrew word that's translated prosper here is actually pretty much a synonym for the word that's also translated success here. These are like parallel lines to emphasize what God's telling him. The Hebrew word for success implies a, a little bit more. It implies godly wisdom. Now, in, in 21st century America, we tend to associate those words with financial success, don't we? When you hear the word prosper and succeed, you think about money. Most people do. More stuff. But the Hebrew words don't necessarily refer to money or stuff. It means to accomplish whatever you were supposed to accomplish, to get it done. So God's basically saying to Joshua, you will succeed in what I'm telling you to do. You will succeed in what you're going to do. You will get it done. You will not fail. I'll see to it. So here stands Joshua now with all these wonderful promises from God ringing in his ears. 
Of course, he hasn't yet experienced the fulfillment of these promises yet, but they're still his. God's given them to him. It's just a matter of time until he experiences them. But he's going to have to do something to experience these things, to receive them experientially. And we'll see exactly what that is in just a minute. But I think there may be quite a few of us Christians who find ourselves in this same kind of situation. And it's easy for us to kind of wander in the wilderness, figuratively speaking, even when God has given us all kinds of promises. Instead of going into the promised land, we're still wandering in the wilderness. They're all in his word. But sometimes we're just not really sure if we can really experience those things that God's promised. And there are obviously some parallels here to the promises he gave to Joshua. For example, God promised Joshua that his enemies couldn't stand before him. You know, we looked at that just now. What did he promise us? Well, pretty much the same thing. We have enemies too, right? They're just not people. It's Satan and his demons. Listen to what God says. Let's just look at a few of these verses. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. How about this one? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. How about this one? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Or what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Or the words of Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They've overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now listen, there, there's, there's more, but that's enough, isn't it? I mean, God's made some incredible promises about our spiritual warfare. Satan knows those verses better than we do. And they terrify him. He can't stand against the power of Christ in us. He knows he can't. The power of God's word, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the name of Christ, the power of the blood of Christ that we have, these promises. Satan can't stand against the power of God in us. He can't stand against the weapons of our warfare. He, all he can do is hope to distract us from God's promises, tempt us, intimidate us, discourage us, get us to quit and give up so we won't use these weapons that God's given us, these verses, these truths against him. And unfortunately, many people are who call themselves Christians, and again, God knows their hearts, but they're not using the weapons very effectively. We're going to have to learn how to do that. It means a little bit of memory work. We need to gird up the loins of our minds and get into the battle. Just like Joshua, we have wonderful, sure promises that we will overcome our enemies. He also promised Joshua that he would be with him wherever he went, right? We just saw that. Promises the same thing to us, doesn't he? Look at this verse. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. He's going to be with us. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples right at the, near the end? He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world or the end of the age. Amen. Let it be. Certainly true. Remember what Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He's going to be with us. Now, that's not all. He's, he's given us many, many more wonderful promises that we need to memorize. He's promised to meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's promised us his perfect peace that passes understanding, even in the midst of tribulation. 
He's promised to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's promised to strengthen us and uphold us with the right hand of his righteousness. And on and on and on. But sadly, too many Christians keep falling into the trap of relying on our feelings instead of relying on God's word. And sometimes we don't feel like he's with us. And sometimes we don't feel very victorious. And sometimes we feel worried and fearful and discouraged and guilty and overwhelmed by our circumstances. And it's kind of like we're standing at the edge of the Jordan, but we've not yet crossed over into God's promises. We've just not yet entered into them. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like we're just maybe a little nervous. I don't know. Fearful? Maybe lazy? I don't know. <laughs> well, in the case of Joshua, there's some things Joshua had to do. First, he had to cross over. He couldn't just stand there looking forever and ever. He had to move. God told him that in verses 2 and 3. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon. You got to go in there and walk on it. I've given it to you. So God, God, God said to Joshua, you're going to have to get up, Joshua. You're going to have to go. You're going to have to walk into it. You're going to have to stand in the land. It's yours, but you have to believe me. You have to do what I tell you. You have to go take it. So in order for the sole of his foot to tread upon this new land, Joshua's going to have to do something. He's going to have to exert some effort. It's going to take a lot of effort, actually, when you read the rest of the story. Huge amount of energy. He's going to have to be self-disciplined. It's going to mean work. It means warfare. Blood, sweat, tears. That's how faith works. God gives the promises. God gives the commands. And in faith, the power of his spirit in us, we obey his commands knowing that he will certainly fulfill his promises. He will keep his word. We can trust him. And we prove that we trust him by our behavior. See? See how it works? Same way it works with Joshua. He had specific promises. He had explicit instructions. Without the promise of God and without the command of God, the promised land project would have been a total disaster. God had to be in charge of this. You may remember we actually have an example of that. We've looked at it not too long ago, back in Numbers chapter 14, because the Lord had pronounced to the Israelites they had a 40-year punishment because of their unbelief and their fearfulness. That was after the report of the spies. You remember that? And he told them, you're going to have to wander for 40 years. None of you except Joshua and Caleb will be able to enter the land. That decision had been made. So Moses shared that decision with the people. And you remember what they did? Look at it, verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up for the Lord's not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites, and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So there are two kind of problems here. <laughs> One mistake is to refuse to simply obey God, to not trust him, 
to not really believe that he'll fulfill his promises. But there's another mistake, and that's the mistake of presumption, to try to do things in our own power without instruction from God and maybe try to claim a promise that he's really not given. Now, that happens in the church today. If I could use an example that I'm afraid many of my brothers and sisters in Christ are making today, I think it's an error. They find verses in the Bible that God will heal us and answer our prayers. And of course, he will, and he does. But guys, he does it in his time, and he does it in his way. He's not promised to heal us necessarily in the time or the way that I choose. You understand that? Sometimes he has a purpose in healing people very quickly, even instantly. Sometimes he does. And sometimes he says, I'm going to heal you, all right. The way I'm going to heal you is with a brand new resurrection body one of these days. Right now, I'm going to let that old one you have go ahead and wear out. Had to wear out sooner or later. You realize that I didn't design it to last forever. But don't worry, you'll be totally healed. You're going to have a brand new, glorious, immortal body. It's going to be good. You just have to wait. But whatever form it comes in, unbelief is always disastrous. Sometimes it comes in the form of just flat disobedience. Sometimes it comes in the form of what we call presumption, presuming on God. But Joshua was told, cross over. He was not told, Joshua, why don't you just wait here? I'll have those dead corpses shipped to you. <laughs> no, no, no. Rise and cross over. He has to move. Reminds me a little bit of Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. You received Jesus by faith, right? But you don't just stay where you were when you received him. You walk by faith. You're supposed to be walking through this life with the Lord, getting stronger and stronger in him. Now, the next part of his command is really crucial. He's commanded essentially to stand firmly on God's word. And there are four aspects to standing firmly on God's word that God gives him here. First, I think we can tell that he has to understand God's word well enough that he doesn't deviate from it. Did you notice that back in the middle of verse 7? Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. God's word requires careful study so we understand it. That takes time, guys. But we have to study the context. We read the verses before and after. We have to look at the cross-references other verses that speak to the same issue. We have to study the words carefully, understand what they really mean. Uh, we, we may need help from godly pastors and teachers and mentors, but we've got to learn how to study God's Word so we can understand it. But sometimes we just don't like what God's Word says. And there can be a temptation to say, this verse can't mean what it seems to say. It has to mean something else. And we try to come up with another meaning and twist it. Now, we have to be careful here, guys. Stay with me. Based on a careful study of everything else God has to say about the subject, we may learn that this verse really does mean something that we missed at first. That happens a lot. But we'd better be careful because we can be tempted to substitute our little private interpretation of the verse. You see what I'm saying? And it may not be just our private interpretation. Sometimes there's a whole bunch of people that come up with the same private interpretation. One guy comes up with it and a whole other bunch of other people adopt it. <laughs> but it's not what God's saying. It's just what we want God to say. We've got to be careful there. And we, sometimes we'll turn to the right or we'll turn to the left of the real meaning and we take away the power of the verse. We lose the truth. 
there are people out there today who will say, and, and by the way, I'm talking about people who call themselves Christians. They call themselves evangelicals. And they'll say, well, if God had written this in the 21st century, he would have said it differently. He wouldn't have said this. Now, again, I know we have to be careful. It is true when we study the Bible, one of the things we do have to take into consideration sometimes are cultural issues. When we read the Bible, it's true. We have to think about the cultural differences. But we'd better be careful that we're not simply trying to do away with some of God's truth because we don't like what it says and we appeal to the cultural differences to excuse ourselves to just ignore the truth. You see, what the, you see the danger there? There's a danger there. Some people don't like what the Bible says about praise. They think it's not respectable. They don't like the way it looks. They're afraid they're going to look silly. And they miss some of God's greatest power and blessings, and they'll blame it on culture. Some people don't like what the Bible says about resisting the devil, so he will flee. I mean, we looked at some of those verses, but they just hope if they'll ignore the devil, he'll go away and leave them alone. Well, that's not going to happen. But they don't want to get into spiritual warfare stuff because they think it looks silly. You see what I'm getting at here? Some people don't like what the Bible says about making disciples. They just decide... They're going to become reservoirs of truth. They like to study. They like to hear the truth, but they're never sharing it with anybody. They're never helping anybody else grow stronger in Christ. Bad mistake. The point is, you and I don't get to just rewrite Scripture <laughs> to say what we'd like for it to say, to say what our society wants it to say, to say what we want it to say so we won't offend people. You understand? That's a real danger in our day. If we're going to enjoy victorious Christian living, if we're going to stand firm, we're going to have to understand God's word and be willing to stand on it, even if it's not popular, not deviate from it. The second aspect of standing firm is in verse 8. He's supposed to talk about God's word. Do you see that? Verse 8, he said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. This book should be in our mouth often. We need to be sharing what we're reading, what we're memorizing, we're trying to digest a tough passage. We haven't figured it out yet. It's a good time to talk to somebody about it. Talk with God about it too. You know, pray about scripture. But if we're not careful, we may never mention God's word, except in church maybe once a week. We must not let it depart from our mouths. And listen, guys, even when we're alone, like I said, we can talk to God about his word. It can be in our mouth when we're by ourselves. Obviously, it's good to talk about God's word with other people, but God loves it. When we talk to him alone, uh, thank you, Lord, for putting that verse in your word. Or maybe, Father, what do you mean by this? I don't understand this verse. Do you mean this or do you mean something else? You mean something I haven't figured out yet? I mean, what, what, what am I supposed to do with this verse, Lord? How do you want me to apply it to my life? How do you want me to live it out? You know, talk to God about his word. Another thing that I think is really important, I think we all need to be asking God to put people into our lives who will be eager to hear God's word so we can talk more about it with them. Some of them may not know Christ yet, and they can come to know Christ as we talk with them about God's word. Some of them may be our brothers and sisters already, but we need to talk with them about God's word. I urge the kids I teach at Cross Creek to pray for a close friend who will love God's word like they do so they can spend time talking about the things of God. We all need mentors, but we also need close godly friends who enjoy talking about God's word with us. There's a third aspect of standing on God's word, and it's in verse 8 also. You shall meditate on it day and night. Meditate. You see it? Meditate. That means mull it over. Think about it. When? He said day and night. <laughs> Sounds pretty much all the time, doesn't it? 
Do you know if you have the Uversion app of the Bible on your phone? It's it's put out by Uversion. I've forgotten. It may just be called Bible. I'm not sure, but it's a, it's a Bible app put out by Uversion. You can find it in the App Store. But it will, among other things, it's got a lot of other things it will do. It's not my favorite Bible study app, but it's my one of my favorite Bible reading apps. It will read the scriptures for you. And I really like the reader they have for the ESV. This is not an electronic reader. This is a human reader. And when I wake up in the middle of the night, I will often set it to read to me for a while. And I'll just listen to God's word for a while in the middle of the night. A few years ago, I can remember I, I did that with the book of Acts. I just kept on going back to the beginning and let it read Acts to me. And then I'd go back and read Acts again, go back and read Acts again over and over and over until I got really familiar with Acts. It's a good way to meditate on God's word in the middle of the night. Right now, when the middle of the night, when I wake up, I'll just listen to my daily Bible readings, sometimes several of them. It's a good way to listen to God's Word. You remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8? I think this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. He doesn't specifically relate it to God's Word, but to me it just sounds like a great invitation to meditate on God's Word. Listen to how he says it. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's any praise, think on these things. Well, <laughs> there's certainly nothing more true or honest or just or pure or lovely or of good report or virtuous or praiseworthy than Scripture, right? <laughs> it's a great invitation, I believe to meditate on God's Word. I think that's what that passage encourages us to do. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means we've got to memorize it, meditate on it, doesn't it? If it's going to dwell in us, let it dwell in you. I think when we disobey this command to meditate on God's Word, what inevitably and invariably happens is our minds begin to meditate on other stuff. Maybe it's meditating on problems or circumstances or our inabilities and insufficiencies. And these things can get to seem so big and so overwhelming. And our hearts will begin to melt in fear because we're meditating on the wrong stuff. <laughs> the cure for that is to meditate, 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 meditate on God's Word. Finally, of course, we're to obey God's Word. Not just part of it, all of it. Look at verse 7 again. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Verse 8. So that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. We must simply obey God's Word. Now, there's one more command here, and I think it emerges from all the other commands and promises that we've been looking at, and God repeats it four times in this chapter just to emphasize it. That's God's way of underlining things. You look at verse 6 and 7 and 9 to begin with. You see it? Can you see it there without me underlining it? What's he say? Here it is. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And then repeats it again down in verse 18. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words... Whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. There it is again. In verse 9, he adds the words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In the New Testament, God tells us, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Ephesians chapter 6, he's talking about spiritual warfare. 
Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. How do we do that? Well, a big part of it is knowing the promises and standing on His Word. God's given us an analogy, I think, in our physical bodies. If I'm going to stay strong physically, I have to eat healthy food. I have to get some exercise. I have to have healthy habits. I have to get rid of unhealthy habits. Same is true spiritually. The Word of God's our food. Our walk of faith, our spiritual warfare is our exercise. We, we need it. We've got to have it to get strong. So by God's grace, we need to move out of the wilderness and cross over into the promised land, just like Joshua had to do. Listen, guys, there's a need today more than ever before for us to be courageous. Now, it's never easy to be courageous. If it were easy, it wouldn't be called courage, right? <laughs> we wouldn't need any courage. If it were easy. It's hard. But before we stop today, I want to share a couple of examples of Christian courage from history. And I think you'll appreciate these things. There was a man named Thomas Bilney. He was born 1495 or approximately 1495 in England. He studied law at Cambridge University and he was ordained to the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church in 1519. Then he started studying the Greek New Testament that Erasmus had just published a few years earlier. He, he published the Greek New Testament in 1516. And God got his attention, like he did so many of the other reformers, and began showing him some of the horrible errors that had been embraced by the Roman Catholic Church. And he started making attempts to share what he was learning with other friends. And one of his friends was Hugh Latimer. 1526, his presiding cardinal, Cardinal Wolsey, called him in and warned him, you're beginning to preach some dangerous stuff. He said, I'm going to make you take an oath that you won't spread the teachings of this heretic named Martin Luther. <laughs> remember, Luther had already presented his 95 Theses. That was 1517. You may remember we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation just a few years ago. But the following year, Bilney preached a series of biblical messages that were considered too extreme, too anti-Roman Catholic. At least they sounded that way to the Roman Catholics. So he was physically dragged from the pulpit while he was preaching and imprisoned in the Tower of London. He was convicted of heresy and he was forced to recant, which he did. After more than a year of imprisonment, he was released, and in 1529, he went back to Cambridge, and he was grieving over the fact that he had recanted. So he determined once again to preach the truth, even though obviously by now he knew it might have deadly consequences. He wasn't allowed at this point to preach in churches, so he preached out in the fields. Once again, he was arrested, and he was tried, and he was found guilty, and he was burned at the stake in 1531. And here's an eyewitness description of what happened in 1531 when he was burned at the stake. I'm just going to read it to you. On arriving at the place of punishment, Bilney fell on his knees and prayed, and then rising up, warmly embraced the stake and kissed it. Turning his eyes toward heaven, he next repeated the Apostles' Creed, and when he confessed the incarnation and crucifixion of the Savior, his emotion was such that even the spectators were moved. Recovering himself, he took off his gown and ascended the pile, reciting the 143rd Psalm. Thrice he repeated the second verse, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for in your sight shall no man living be justified. And then he added, 
I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee. Turning towards the officers, he said, Are you ready? Yes, was their reply. Bilney placed himself against the post and held up the chain which bound him to it. His friend, Warner, with eyes filled with tears, took a last farewell. Bilney smiled kindly at him and said, Doctor, passe gregum tuum, feed your flock, that when the Lord comes, he may find you so doing. Several monks who had given evidence against him, perceiving the emotion of the spectators, began to tremble and whispered to the martyr, These people will believe that we're the cause of your death and will withhold their alms, upon which Bilney said to them, Good folks, be not angry against these men for my sake, as though they be the authors of my death. It is not they. He knew that his death proceeded from the will of God. The torch was applied to the pile. The fire smoldered for a few minutes, and then suddenly burning up fiercely, the martyr was heard to utter the name of Jesus several times, and sometimes the word credo, I believe. A strong wind which blew the flames on one side prolonged his agony. Thrice they seemed to retire from him, and thrice they returned, until at length, the whole pile being kindled, he expired. I'll end the quote there. The bishop, who was responsible for his arrest after he saw how Bilney died, said, I fear I have burned Abel and let Cain go, which of course he had. I mentioned earlier that Bilney was sharing some of what he was learning from the New Testament with Hugh Latimer. They were friends. Some of you may remember the story of Hugh Latimer, but it's worth repeating. He was born somewhere around 1485, the son of an English farmer, went to Cambridge University, became a Roman Catholic priest in 1515. He was about 30 years old then. And Bilney is the one that convinced Latimer to study the New Testament for himself. So he began meeting with Bilney and a few more reformers in a place called the White Horse Tavern, the White Horse Inn to study the Bible, to discuss what they're learning. And Latimer began to preach openly that the New Testament must be translated into English so people could read it. Now, that was courageous at the time because the first English translation by Tyndall, remember William Tyndall? That had already been banned. Tyndall himself was tried, convicted of heresy, and executed by strangulation, after which his body was burned at the stake too. He was already dead, but that was in 1536. But the same cardinal that had first imprisoned Bilney Cardinal Wolsey was now getting into trouble himself because he wasn't willing to annul King Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragorn, so Cardinal Wolsey was losing influence. Meanwhile, Latimer's reputation at Cambridge was growing stronger. He was a brilliant man, and he was a man of great conviction, and he became the Bishop of Worcester. But, of course, Henry VIII was a very immoral man, and the story was told that Latimer once gave Henry VIII a Bible with a leaf turned down to Hebrews 13.4, which was marked, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. It took a lot of courage for Latimer to do that. You realize that, don't you? His life was at stake. Later, Latimer was preaching before the king in the court. The king was present, and he preached a scathing denunciation of the king's immorality, and he used the text where John the Baptist rebuked Herod for Herod's immorality and adultery. Remember that? It took an enormous amount of courage for him to do that. And Henry VIII, as expected, was furious, and after the sermon was over, he said, Latimer, I want you to preach again next Sunday, and you got to take back everything you just said. <laughs> well, the following Sunday, Latimer came into the pulpit. Here's the king again. Here's the court again. He started his sermon by saying to himself, 
started preaching to himself. He said, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. And then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence comest thou, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. That's the end of his quote. He then proceeded to preach the exact same message he'd preached the previous Sunday. Same message. Everybody there held their breath. They were certain that Henry VIII would have him beheaded immediately. Instead, amazingly, Henry VIII backed down, and he said to everybody there, Blessed be God, I have so honest a servant. <laughs> so for the moment, Latimer's life was spared. But a few years later, when the Roman Catholic Mary Tudor, remember the one they called Bloody Mary, she came to the throne, Latimer was arrested then for treason and sentenced to be executed. He was burned at the stake in 1555, along with his friend Nicholas Ridley. And just before they died, Latimer encouraged Ridley with these words. <laughs> Love it. Man of courage. He said, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. <laughs> these were men of courage, and we can learn from their example. Sadly, the candle in England is flickering pretty badly in our day. Many of the churches of England are empty. Many are dying. Many of them have a few older members hanging on with the youth tending to leave the church behind. And I think the churches in both England and America desperately need what we're, to do what we're trying to do with Veritas. They need to know why they believe what they believe is true, and they're not teaching that like they should. And then, of course, they need the courage to stand on it. Meanwhile, we need to be prepared, guys, to stand with courage because Satan's roar is becoming louder around us if we'll just pay attention. We can be strong. We can be of a good courage. We can be not afraid, neither be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. I'm going to close this out by letting you watch a very brief video. It's 18 seconds. This is our granddaughter, Kaylee. Her dad, our son Jeremy, died in 2015. She's now a 19-year-old young woman. But when she did this recording, she was in the second grade. It was during the year she and her brother Austin lived with us here in Tennessee. Listen to this. Have not I commanded you, be strong and have a good courage. Don't be afraid, neither be dismayed, as the Lord is God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1, 1 9. Really good. I'm so proud of you. So be strong and have a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this first chapter of Joshua. Lord, thank you for the example of courageous men of God. We know, Lord, that apart from you, we will never be courageous. We are too weak. We are too frail. We will get our eyes off of you. We'll get our eyes on ourselves. We'll get our eyes on our circumstances, and we will fail. 
But Lord, we know that by your grace, we can be strong and of a good courage. We can stand firm because you've promised you will never leave us. You will never de depart from us. You will never abandon us from now until we're with you in eternity in our glorified bodies. So Lord, please would you give your servants the, the wisdom, the grace we need, the faith we need, so that when the chips are down, when the time comes that we have to stand firm and it's terrifying that we will have courage from you to stand firm and be courageous, just like Joshua, that we can represent you well, just like men like Hugh Latimer. Lord, we thank you for these examples and we thank you for loving us, for being patient with us, for forgiving us over and over again and for giving us the opportunity to live in the days in which we live. Lord, we know the days are evil. The time is short. Help us to be good representatives of you and of our Lord Jesus Christ until you call us home. Help us to stay in the battle. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.